Welcome to the first episode of the Micronutrient Spotlight series that I'm going to be doing. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about magnesium. Everything you need to know and maybe some things you don't really need to know about magnesium. Uh, it's, it's so comprehensive, I didn't actually think that I would find so much information about it, but there's so much information, very relevant information about magnesium that I found it helpful to divide it into two episodes. So this first part is going to talk about what magnesium is, why it matters, how common deficiencies are, uh, the different types of deficiencies, and in which conditions or diseases magnesium has been studied, as well as some ways that you can test for deficiencies and which are the best ways to test for that. So to begin, what is magnesium? Magnesium is an essential mineral involved in over 300 biochemical reactions. It's involved in energy production, so ATP synthesis, mood, metabolism, blood pressure, cognitive health, sleep, and much more. It's the second most prevalent electrolyte in the body. But why does it even matter? Well, let's talk about deficiencies. Deficiencies are actually pretty common, even in developed countries. That may come off as a surprise, but really just think about the food pyramid. Nutrient-poor grains make up the bottom of the food pyramid, and most of them are refined. Then think about the sad standard American diet, loaded with processed foods, which by definition are stripped of fiber and nutrients, magnesium being one of them. Now how prevalent is a magnesium deficiency or an inadequate intake of magnesium? While a true deficiency seems to be pretty rare, anywhere from 48% up to 75% of Americans are not getting the recommended amount of magnesium. So that would be known as the RDA, the Recommended Dietary Allowance. 48 to 75% of Americans. Now, a study of apparently healthy Brazilian university students showed 42% had subnormal magnesium levels. In the U.S., around 68% of American adults eat below the recommended intake of magnesium, and 19% consume less than half of the recommended amount. Now, these are pretty profound numbers. These are pretty big numbers. This is a large chunk of the U.S. population. Now, obesity can induce a magnesium deficiency as well. Now, why is that relevant? Well, the U.S. obesity rate is just shy of 50%. So, this becomes a very relevant and a very prevalent issue. Not only does obesity predispose one to a myriad of health conditions, it also in itself can lead to certain deficiencies. For example, vitamin D also. People with type 2 diabetes also have a very high risk of deficiency. So as you can see, we're really dealing with a very chronically sick population. I always sound like a broken record when I say that, but it's really true. When you think about the amount of people in the United States now, even children who are developing conditions that were rarely seen even in adults, that is profound, that is scary. And it doesn't just have to do with magnesium, obviously. This is just one piece of the puzzle. And as I've come to understand, it is so complex. There is rarely ever any blanket statement. And don't get me wrong, this episode is not a, everyone go buy my magnesium supplement from my affiliate link. 
no, that's not the point of this episode at all. And I actually don't think that everyone could benefit from that. Um, everyone needs to go do their own research, speak with their doctor, get levels checked. And really, it's, that's what it's about. It's about learning to take health into your own hands, but being smart about it. It's not just about a blanket statement of, oh, this is good for everyone, this is the cure for this. No, everything is, seems to be context dependent. Whereas for one person, magnesium could be a good thing. For another person, magnesium may actually be harmful. So keep that in mind. Now, let's talk about the conditions and diseases that magnesium has been studied in. First, we have blood pressure. There's quite a bit of evidence which points to uh, supplemental magnesium's ability to notably lower blood pressure in those with a deficiency and or those with hypertension. Now, it's also involved in brain health, anxiety, stress, and depression. So with migraines, it seems to reduce the frequency and the intensity of migraine headaches. With stress, magnesium status and stress seem to have this interesting inverse relationship. When stress is high, magnesium status seems to be low and vice versa. Several researchers hypothesize a bi-directional link where stress can lead to low magnesium levels and low magnesium levels can lead to higher susceptibility to stress. Now, acute stress has been associated with increased magnesium excretion in the urine. In other words, when you get really stressed out, you seem to eliminate uh, magnesium in the urine much more readily. Several studies have also shown that during times of stress, magnesium exerts a kind of antidepressant effect in rats. Basically, they have these poor rats swim until they can't swim anymore. It's called a forced swim test, and they see how long they swim before they give up, and then they pull them out. And in these rats who were given supplemental magnesium, they seem to outswim the rats in the control group who were not given magnesium. Now let's talk about dementia. One study explored the effects of magnesium L3 and 8 in patients with mild to moderate dementia. These patients underwent brain imaging, cognitive testing, and blood draws at baseline, and at 12 weeks to assess magnesium L3 and 8's effects on executive function, attention, processing speed, verbal fluency, and memory. Cognitive testing and blood draws were also done after four weeks of stopping magnesium. And according to the researchers, findings showed a significant improvement in regional cerebral metabolism along with improvement in a global index of cognitive functioning in the total sample after 12 weeks of magnesium L3 and 8 treatment. Increased red blood cell magnesium levels were associated with improvements in overall cognitive and executive functioning in some but not all patients. Again, as with everything in science, this isn't definitive. This isn't saying more magnesium good, less magnesium bad. This isn't magnesium is the cure to dementia. No way is it that simple, right? It could just be, first of all, this is an animal study, right? Animal studies, while they can be useful, they don't always carry over into humans. We are still a totally different animal. Um, but they do, they do begin to tell us something about its, its mechanistic uh, function, how it works. So of course it's promising and it's really cool, but more research should be done to see if the effects can be replicated. Let's talk about depression. So magnesium generally seems to correlate well with depression symptoms. 
Several antidepressants seem to increase magnesium concentration in the red blood cells and in the plasma. This isn't new. The benefit of magnesium to treat depression was actually first published in 1921. It seems to reduce scores of depression in people who had lower levels of magnesium at baseline. Interestingly, a paper written in 2006 titled Rapid Recovery from Major Depression Using Magnesium Treatment discussed the effects of magnesium glycinate and taurinate on depression. Glycine and taurine are the amino acids bound to magnesium and can have in themselves inhibitory effects on the NMDA receptors. Now these NMDA receptors, when they are hyper excitable, they seem to be sort of uh, neurotoxic and cause damage in the brain. Now, again, this doesn't mean more magnesium equals less depression necessarily. Depression is multifaceted and complex. But several researchers hypothesize that the mechanism of action of magnesium in terms of its effect on depression might be working through these NMDA receptors. Again, overexcitability of these receptors can be caused by a magnesium deficiency which can lead to neurotoxicity or injury to the neurons. Later on in, in part two of this series, we'll talk about a form of magnesium which seems to pass through the blood-brain barrier and get absorbed very well there. Next, let's talk about heart health. In those who are deficient, magnesium has been shown to reduce the risk of coronary heart disease. Reduced blood levels of magnesium seem to correlate with irregular heartbeat. What about metabolic health? Well, there seems to be a minor reduction of blood sugar with magnesium supplementation in people with diabetes or elevated blood sugar. In fact, insulin sensitivity was also improved in people who were magnesium deficient. Now, this is really important because insulin resistance is a hallmark of metabolic dysfunction. It's a hallmark of type 2 diabetes. And also, insulin resistance in the brain seems to be kind of, by some researchers, not others, known as type 3 diabetes, and that's Alzheimer's disease. So insulin sensitivity really seems to be a good marker for how metabolically healthy you are. So the fact that magnesium could improve this, not in everyone, but in people who were magnesium deficient, is pretty cool. It also seems to have no effect on triglycerides and no reliable change in HDL or LDL cholesterol. But what about athletic performance? This is the one which maybe most of the people listening are interested in, and certainly one that I'm interested in. Our muscles store approximately 35% of our entire body's magnesium. In fact, a double-blind study done in triathletes showed that aerobic exercise seems to improve after magnesium orotate supplementation due to a lowered stress response and replenishment of magnesium lost through sweat. It also showed a significant increase in muscle oxygenation around 200% of baseline in the magnesium group compared to 126% in the control group. Swimming time improved, but biking and running did not. So it's weird because this study was done, I believe in 2006. And so I'm surprised that there hasn't been very many other well done studies like this repeated if they found such promising effects. So hopefully they do more of them because I'd be interested to see what happens. Although several studies show low magnesium status correlated with muscle cramps, there seem to be no studies on exercise-induced muscle cramps and magnesium. In my experience though, 
Magnesium seemed to help a lot. Magnesium and salt both seemed to help a lot, especially when I was very, very active because I was sweating out a lot of electrolytes and I didn't know how important magnesium was for athletic performance. So it might be worth considering for athletes. Next, let's talk about sleep. That's usually, that's actually how I got introduced into magnesium. My sleep used to absolutely suck. I used to get up five or six times a night. I used to dread when the time came to go to bed because I knew I would just sitting there rolling over again and again. Sometimes my sheets would be on the floor, my pillows would be on the floor, I'd be on the floor. So magnesium was really the first way that I started quote unquote hacking my sleep. So in one study, magnesium citrate supplementation was shown to improve sleep in adults. Another clinical study showed an increase in slow wave sleep and reduced sleeping cortisol, the stress hormone, when supplementing magnesium. While there are no studies looking at the effects of magnesium glycinate on sleep, the glycine amino acid seems to have a calming effect on the brain and body in itself. When paired with magnesium, it would make sense that these effects would be more pronounced. But again, that's only what I've felt from personal experience using magnesium glycinate, and it's not really shown in the literature. Next, magnesium influences vitamin D. According to an article written by examine.com, the independent database I use to review data on nutrition and supplementation, which is, I urge you guys to go and look at that because it really is one of the simplest and non-biased from what I can tell, uh, sources of nutrition and supplementation information. And they're mostly free except for some of their guides. So I would recommend if you ever have a question about whether a supplement works or how it works, I would recommend going into examine.com and looking up that supplement because it saves a lot of time and money. So according to an article written by them, some evidence suggests that vitamin D also increases magnesium absorption and magnesium serves as a cofactor for several enzymes involved in vitamin D metabolism. Furthermore, magnesium appears to influence the levels of vitamin D binding protein, which transports vitamin D in the blood. And there's a type of magnesium dependent rickets, which highlights the importance of magnesium and vitamin D status. Now, for those of you who don't know, Vitamin D deficiency causes rickets, which is like the bones that are deformed, right? So this is saying that even if you have adequate levels of vitamin D, if you do not have enough magnesium, you might still have rickets. So that just shows the, the codependence of vitamin D on magnesium status. Now, there are several forms of vitamin D. It needs to be converted into its active form, known as calcitriol before it can exert its important effects on the body and magnesium seems to help it convert it into its active form. Now you might be asking yourself, am I deficient? Should I consider taking a supplement? And again, that's not something I can answer for you. That's something that you and your doctor can answer for you and you being as informed as you possibly can. So in order to do that, there are two different types of deficiencies. There's an overt or a frank deficiency which has blatantly obvious and potentially life-threatening symptoms. And then number two, we have subclinical deficiencies. Now these are small but significant reductions in a mineral or vitamin which still has biological consequences long-term. 
So I like this idea of a subclinical deficiency because it often seems like whenever I've talked to a doctor or um, whenever I've talked to just people in general in the health profession, it seems that you're either healthy, aka you don't have a disease diagnosis, or you have a disease. And this is where I really like the World Health Organization definition of health because it's much more than that. It's Health is not just the absence of disease, but rather it's the total mental, emotional, and physical well-being. And that's what I think that's about. So it's rather than being a black or white, healthy or not, it's a spectrum, a sliding scale. But anyways, small rant. According to a study, more than a quarter of obese and non-obese youth have adequate excuse me, inadequate intakes of magnesium. More than a quarter of obese and non-obese youth have inadequate intakes of magnesium. And I'll link to every single one of these sources in the show notes so you can check them out for yourselves. In other words, children are overfed and undernourished. This is a point which I have just beaten since the beginning of the podcast in different words. Um, And this is something that I talked Uh, with uh, Dr. Bill Schindler about in episode number 19. So I would highly recommend you go and look at that. So all in all, while we may not have a high prevalence of true overt deficiencies, subclinical deficiencies are not providing us with the optimal levels of magnesium in order to reduce the risk of chronic diseases as much as possible and give us that total mental, physical, and emotional well-being that the World Health Organization defined as health. So What are some symptoms of deficiencies? Well, we have muscle cramps, lethargy, uh, brain fog, inability to focus, uh, anxiety, irritability, and even depression. But how can you actually test your levels? Well, you can do a red blood cell and white blood cell magnesium, which seems to be more relevant than serum magnesium or magnesium circulating in the blood. Although you could also do a serum magnesium analysis. Um, However, it doesn't seem to correlate well with our body's storage of magnesium. In fact, there was a review paper published in in the British medical journal, Open Heart. And it explained that we can actually pull magnesium out of the bone, muscle, and the organs in order to keep the serum stable. So the blood levels of magnesium stable. That means that measuring blood levels of magnesium is not a reliable measure of a magnesium deficiency. So the ones that seem to be the most relevant from the research that I've done is red blood cell, white blood cell, and even muscle. So doing a muscle biopsy. So that's it for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you learned quite a bit about magnesium. We'll have a ton more information in the next one about all the different forms, what they seem to do, the dosage, the dietary considerations, um, some of the nutrient interactions with magnesium, whether you're following a ketogenic or low-carb diet or high-carb diet, and how that affects uh, the amount of magnesium that you can get. Please share it with anyone that you think would enjoy it and stick around for the next episode. Thank you for listening.